Well, when I began writing this message, it was the Monday following the death of cultural icon Kobe Bryant. Uh, you would have to live in a cave somewhere to not know of his passing along with eight others and the helicopter crash. And, and of course, uh, globally, the impact that that death had on individuals, the various services that took place, uh, where if you are an NBA fan, you watched uh, these individuals who were also icons stood up and spoke of this man's life and of the relationship that he had with them. And, and obviously, age 41, uh, the older that we all get, we realize exactly how young uh, that really is. And anyone who dies at a young age really is a, is a tragedy all the way across. It provokes in us this question then uh, of our own lives. In fact, if today were the day, if our lives were called into account in this moment, if this were to be our last, are we ready? Are we individually ready to meet and be in the presence of God? Are we ready to die? I don't know if Kobe Bryant or any of the eight others were prepared. Possibly all were, possibly none, some. But we all will give an account to God one day of this life. And John, in today's passage, as we continue walking through 1 John, actually addresses this position of where we are with the Lord, calling into question, are we ready? And so we'll look at the challenges of continuing in our commitment to him and rejoicing in the character of God as we do. Before we spend time reading, though, and dive in, let's, let's pray together. So God, the reality of our own lives, the stark contrast of life and death, what will take place when each of us leaves this planet and sees you? The reality that we are not promised tomorrow, that today we could be called into account for our lives with you. Are we ready? And so I pray that as we walk through this passage that John wrote long ago, you would help us. We love you and trust you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so 1 John chapter 2, verses 28 through chapter 3, verse 3 is where we'll spend our time this morning. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous... You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And so, really, in this first verse that we've looked at, verse 28, John 
dials down in this idea of this concept of who we are in Christ, this, the birthing that takes place when we surrender our lives to Jesus, calling us his children to abide in him. And then, of course, the results that come after. There are other verses in the following chapters of 1 John that also point to this concept of our being birthed, our salvation in him. It's a repeated theme from this point forward. Chapter 3, verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep sinning because he has been born of God. Chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever has been born of God knows God. Chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. And then chapter 5, verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. And so we see this repeated theme of John providing encouragement for those of us who have surrendered our lives to Jesus that, that we do have, a, as we sung in that last song, a good, good Father who loves us and who has called us to abiding in him, which is what we dealt with in the passage together last week. And then we have confidence in him as a result of that, not shrinking back from him in shame at his coming. So it's this picture of this triumphant return of the king for those who know him, and then in a procession, we all follow uh, the king. And so he, John, is encouraging not only the writers of this letter 2,000 years ago, but us as well, that the goal, the encouragement is for us uh, to not shrink back as followers that is coming, looking somehow for the back of the line of this amazing pro procession when he returns for us one day, but actually running towards the opportunity to be in the very presence of God himself, not having shame. And so this, this concept or idea of who we are as we're found in him, being his children, being his kids, abiding in him and him loving us, that we shouldn't do that with shame. We shouldn't approach him in that perspective. But all of us still in our lives wrestle and deal with the reality of sin. And so there are times in our lives when we may ask ourselves the question, how am I, as being a follower of Jesus for so long, at times still so consumed with my sin? You would think that my love relationship with Christ, because of all that he's given me, just mere gratitude would absolutely eliminate this flesh desire, this world desire, when temptations cross my path that I would easily avoid because of my increased and intense love for God. But the reality of it is, because we are still all works in progress, works in process, that we wrestle and we struggle, just as did Paul, with the very same concept that that there's this constant battle, this warring that takes place within our souls. And if we're not abiding in him, we're in big trouble. 
victory will be next to impossible if it not for the grace and mercy of God. And even at times when we're abiding, when we're in his very presence, when we're experiencing spiritual disciplines, when we're walking with him, there is still this incredible battle in our lives that won't end until we see him face to face one day. John understood that struggle, and his call for the church is to remember that the work of Christ on the cross gave you the opportunity to be burst in him. And if you surrendered your life, the call to abide. Then verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So this is fairly common language for John as he's walked through this book with us, talking about uh, these evidences that should flow from our lives related to our relationship with Christ if we are truly found in him. So there are really three types of righteousness that are focused on, in particular in the New Testament, but there are Old Testament references as well. The first is status righteousness, uh, the fact of whether or not we are actually found in Christ. If we've surrendered our lives, our status is that the blood of Jesus has covered our sin, and so we're found in him, uh, that we, we know him, that we're walking with him. Next is this idea of social righteousness. Especially in the Old Testament, we see reference of, of uh, God speaking directly to kings, speaking of kings, and how they were to justly rule, how they were to treat people fairly, to show kindness and mercy and grace to those with whom they were ruling over. And so this idea of a social righteousness that was to have taken place in today as well, this idea of how people are to be treated justly and fairly, regardless of background. And then uh, the third is moral righteousness, and that's really what John is is talking about here this idea of our lives being so intertwined with the Lord that we are so walking with him instead that the Holy Spirit is so working in our lives that this idea of moral righteousness, the way we live, brings greater evidence to those around us, followers of Jesus and non-followers of Jesus, that there is something uniquely different in our lives because of the way we function loving God, loving people, and how we're to flow out of, of our lives. And you may have heard uh, this phrase before. Anytime you compare, you lose. Anytime you compare yourself with someone else, you lose. So if I see something in someone else's life uh, that I desire and I think I'll never measure up to, then I've compared myself with another individual. Uh, musicians often, who are not athletic, some are, but who aren't, want to be athletes. Athletes who are not musical typically want to be musicians. And they may not have a skill set there. Uh, I don't think I've ever heard anyone say, I'd like to be as strong or as good of a climber as a monkey, because typically we don't compare ourselves with animals. We compare ourselves with people, and we do it in the way of uh, social position work position, a skill set, or something we see in someone else's life that we're like, if I could only have this aspect more so in my life that they exhibit in theirs, I would be a much better person. You can see the flawed logic in that. The only one with whom that we're to compare ourselves with is Jesus. And obviously, the only way we can measure up 
to who we're called to be in him is through the blood of Jesus covering our sins. There is nothing good in us at all apart from Christ. And I'm sure that you've met at points those who are morally straight, who are not followers of Jesus. Some even, if we were to compare, you would have to say, and so would I, they are a better moral individual than I am. They have a better picture of how we're to be walking through life. But just because someone is good, and we know this, based on the salvation that Christ gives us, based on his work, not our own, that those individuals, if they've never surrendered their lives to Jesus, and if they don't, before they see him face to face, will spend an eternity separated from him. So the most moral atheist will still spend an eternity separated from God. And so we can see these examples and we can be encouraged by those of how people live. But in essence, our standard is for our lives, if we call ourselves followers of Jesus, is, is Jesus himself. And we can only live out the people that he's called us to be individually through the power of the Holy Spirit. John was reminding the church and is reminding us that this righteousness sets in our lives when we are found in him, when we are born in him. We surrender our lives to him. And then in chapter 3, he continues, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. A better version, uh, possibly a better translation for us, uh, would be the kind of love the Father has lavished. Uh, New International Version states that word or that phrase, that uh, unconditional, gracious, extreme amount of love that he shows for us. He's lavished on us his love to call us his children. For those of us who have had either uh, by birth children or uh, have adopted, we obviously call those kids our kids. Through the process of time, nothing can change that. Our mother, our father, whoever they would be in our own lives, we are their kids. And while we've heard stories, and possibly this has been yours, where parents have tried to disown their children because of whatever has come in their lives, the fact of the matter is we are our parents' kids regardless. For our kids, for our three, they will always be known as our kids. And our love for them prayerfully will continue uh, throughout the entirety of their lives in that way. They are our children. Well, in the same way, if we have surrendered our lives to Christ, we are his children. It's not something that we can have some kind of an action or something in our lives that causes him to disown us. Once we are his, we're his. We're sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. He will never leave us or forsake us. We are his children. So John reminding this to the church that the love of the Father, that he's lavished on them, not because of their works or because of what they've done, just because of who God is, his character, that he loves in spite of for all, not just for some, that God loves all. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. 
He loves all. And so that had to have been great encouragement to them. And then he shares in that second part of the verse that there is this section of people who don't know him. Obviously, large sections, large population bases of those. And so as his followers, that the church should not be surprised that they also don't know them and don't know their place in Christ. And so this idea of people coming against for the sake of the statement that we make solely, the statement that we are found in Christ, that they would face opposition. But they shouldn't be surprised by the opposition that exists because as they didn't know him, they will not know us. And in verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children. Now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Now this idea of seeing him as he is, of what exactly we will be like when we see the Father, isn't completely clarified in Scripture. There are passages that talk about what heaven will look like, what being in the presence of God will be like, uh, even glimpses of what heaven will be like for us, but none of us knows for certain everything that we will experience and encounter once we are in the presence of God. And for those of us who are found in him, what we will yet be. We know when he appears, we shall be like him. And so there should be this anticipation and excitement in our lives that a better day is coming, reminding us of where our true home is. Our true home is not this planet. We get that confused as well. It's in heaven. It's in eternity with those who are followers of Jesus, with our King. There are a couple of verses that really stand out related to the power of the Holy Spirit working in us, reminding us that we are found in him, that it's not based on our own work. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 2.24 He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, so this radically different calling, by his wounds you have been healed. And then Philippians 3.9, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, filthy rags that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So once again, reminding us that we are not called to shrink back at his coming, we're to look forward to that, and that our salvation is not based on what we've done, it's based on, on Christ. And so we see this love he's lavished for us, and it should produce in us this amazing sense of, once again, gratitude for his mercy and grace and for this unending, unbelievable love that he showers on us. And he continues in verse 3, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And so you may have heard songs before related to the blood of Jesus and how when we surrender our lives His blood washes us clean, so we're seen by him, in him, as white as snow, clean in his presence. And this desire to please him in our lives should be a natural result of our being found in him, which produces in us this continuing commitment, this continuing drive in our lives to want to please him. Not because we're accepted more or less by how we act or how we respond. That love is there regardless of how we act because it's based again on him. But this driving commitment to want to please our commanding officer, as we see 
and sections of the New Testament, Philippians in particular. Jesus was confronted with the question, if you remember, in Luke chapter 18 by a rich young ruler who was seeking, supposedly, the kingdom of God. And I just want to read this section for us, Luke 18, beginning in verse 18. And a ruler asked him, Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. And when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, There is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. So what was Jesus driving at with this rich young ruler who was asking him how he could enter the kingdom of God, how he could be found in him? Jesus went right to the heart of the individual. It's great that you're this moral, upstanding individual of character, I think, it's, I think it's fine. But if you're really wanting to find hope in Christ, hope, Jesus saying in me, being able to inherit eternal life, being found in God, then here it is. Here's what really has your heart. So if our lives were laid bare on a table, This morning, followers of Jesus and for those of us who have not yet surrendered, what would be that thing? Wealth? Possessions? Position? If it were laid bare and he were to actually see our hearts, which, by the way, he does, and we were to look at our hearts from that perspective, what so captivates our lives that if Jesus were to call us into account for that specific thing or those, we too would walk away sad because we don't want to yield it. All of us have those. (laughs) Let's not kid ourselves. But as we draw closer to him, relationally, as the Holy Spirit convicts us and moves in our lives, then we, in response, yield those as he reveals those to us. And some of us, all of us, may for a lifetime battle, yielding again and again and again, whatever it is that's holding our attention. The Old Testament essentially summarizes that way of living, Micah 6.8. He has told you, oh man, what is good? 
And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to seek to honor God by obeying his commands and doing what is fair, to love kindness, putting others first, and to walk humbly with your God, engaging him in a deep, vibrant, abiding relationship. So what do we depend? Who do we depend? Upon for life and joy and enrichment. Whose character do we depend upon more? Our own or our king's? As we put more faith and trust in Christ, as we walk with him, not only do we see his character, as the Holy Spirit works in us, not only do we see his character lived out in our lives, but we continually desire more of him and less of us. Because we know this life is all about Jesus. All of us are works in progress. The balance John has put out for us here is a challenging one. He meets us at the core of our needs, the core of our lives. And as we talked about in the beginning of the service, if we're not spending regular time with him, it's amazing how the Holy Spirit's voice in our lives deafens and how we continue to exist and walk through, placing ourselves on our own thrones, neglecting the fact that he deserves our all, yielding our lives to him. Where are you today? Are you ready? If today was the day your life would be called into account, to see him face to face? Are you found in Jesus? Have you surrendered your life? If you have not, the Bible says today is your day. Cry out to him that you're a sinner, that you're needed a savior, that Jesus came and died for you. That's how much he loved you. Repenting, turning away from your old life, running into a relationship with him, allowing him to do that work today being your actual birth, surrendering your life. And if you're found in him, and you sat listening to his word, did the Holy Spirit reveal something in your life that captivates you more than him? If so, in this moment, your response and mine God, please take that thing from me. Do the work. May that, whatever it is, no longer capture my heart and captivate me more than you. And might I be able to begin again running in freedom? Confess it as sin. Repent. And as 1 John 5, 13 says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so you may know you have eternal life. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just and will forgive us every time of every sin and purify us from all unrighteousness as far as the east is from the west. So far your sin will be removed 
from you. And then don't allow that thing, whatever it is, to continue to chain your life. God has better for you and for me. Let's pray.